What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast about philosophy, history, sociology, pop culture, whatever you name it, we talk about it. And as always, I am pretty goddamn excited to be here today. Yeah. I don't know how you're feeling, Laurel, but I feel great. I'm excited to be here too. We took a week off, so we're sorry we have been out of your ear holes uh, since before Thanksgiving, but it's nice to be back in the studio and recording an episode for you. Um, we are here in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, so we're in the holiday gauntlet, and we're going to try to crank out some good content uh, before the uh, the end of the year. And this week, we are touching on a subject that is one of the passions of my life. One of the things that I spend my days and nights contemplating and pondering, and we are talking about probably the most influential movie on me not named Star Wars. All right, yeah. And that would be, we are going to be discussing the ethics of archaeology filtered through a rewatch of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is going to be a fantastic episode. I can't wait to dive in. We have a ton of content before we begin, Laurel, if people want to reach us, how can they reach us? We would love to uh, have you get in touch with us. We are all over social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and we're on Facebook. You can also head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com, to read some extra blog content and get in touch with us on the contact form there. And while you're at it, if you have not hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast listening app you are listening in right now, please do. And uh, if you have the time, leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, because it helps us reach some more people. So this is the second time we've discussed Indiana Jones in the history of this podcast. We discussed Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in our conversation about the Holy Grail and other MacGuffins and what those mean in stories. But for this, we're going to go back to the original Came out in 1981, directed by Steven Spielberg. I believe we shouldn't need to say this, but if you've never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, we will spoil the living hell out of it. And we're going to take it that everyone is intimately familiar with this movie. Um, It is a blockbuster, and it helped inspire me to want to study history. Part of the reason I got a degree in ancient history is because Indiana Jones was one of my heroes growing up. I had a whip. I knew how to crack it. I was Indiana Jones for Halloween, which is all stuff I said in the previous episode. So 
let's let's kick off this discussion, and I'd like to start an intro con- question for you. Okay. Um, something that I ask a lot of times when we talk about a major watershed iconic pop culture moment. Why do you think Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark is so successful? I think a, a lot of it comes down to what you uh, just said, is that Indiana Jones as a character and as a franchise was inspirational to you personally. Like You were like, I'm going to be Indiana Jones for Halloween and I want to study history. And I think it did something similar for a generation of people and continues to do so today. I think by taking you know, an academic, inaccessible topic uh, and placing it in uh, an action-adventure context. We have this really rich um, world of ideas to explore and world of adventure to explore, and it inspired a generation of people to be more interested in history, culture, anthropology, archaeology, and the like. I also think uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, as a movie, is so 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 well written like it is so solid and its characters not just indie are so iconic uh marion ravenwood for one is one of the the best woman characters in action adventure ever uh and i think it, it holds up so well in terms of the tightness of its writing that it's really a master class in how to make the action adventure genre uh substantial yeah i think everything from the first intro scene, which in many ways has no bearing on the plot of the movie at all. It's just Just, world building just serves to introduce us to who Indiana Jones is and the, the adventures that he goes on to acquire these rare and sometimes magical objects. Yeah. And, and I would also say that, yes, the writing is completely uh, amazing. The directing and acting are, I mean, it's as close to a flawless, perfect movie as one could ever imagine, it still has a 95% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Nice. I want to know who the 5% are that didn't like this movie. Archaeologists. Yeah, they're <laughs> probably all, you know, archaeologists that are, you know, annoyed. Um, so, yeah, I think you you nailed it. The writing, I would just want to add the other thing to it that you can't discuss Indiana Jones and its success without it is the John Williams score. Oh, absolutely. The score is iconic. And it all feeds into... Uh, the collaboration of the directors, of the writers, of John Williams, of the actors, of every single bit of work that went into this. It it was all high caliber talent, of course, but it was also people who had a very consistent and uh, good working relationship, which is why we were able to get a movie in Raiders that is so, so true and so nailed what it was trying to be. Because it is sort of a pastiche of... 1930s and 40s adventure serials. That's what it wanted to be was like, let's try to do like those radio adventures or the uh, TV serials, tune in next time and see what uh, crazy adventures such and such Jones gets into. Um, And all of them came together to create this perfect, like tonally really, really complex, but um, effective movie. Like it's campy, it is fun, it's silly, but it's also really dark really serious at times and and really complex in terms of the character relationships and the ethical arguments that are going on uh, within the story. So I my my wide-brimmed archaeologist hat is off to the entire team of people who made this movie. And let's not forget our man, George Lucas. He had a little of something course. to do with it, too. a little bit something to do Just with it. Just a little bit. It's funny how the most my most iconic movies 
usually like favorite ones that have shaped me as a person have George Lucas's and Steven Spielberg's and John Williams's hands. Which all is over true them. for a generation. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. So I think that that sums up pretty concisely why this movie is successful. We're going to take the movie as read. I'm not going to summarize it. We will be picking out specific scenes, but I'd like to jump into some of the implications of the movie to archaeology itself. Great. So we all know Indiana Jones is an archaeologist, and he is a particular type of archaeologist who goes to dangerous and hostile and weird places and tries to retrieve very rare artifacts and to bring them back to his museum, which is attached to the university where he teaches. This is not at all how archaeology is actually done in the real world. No. There's no reality in it whatsoever, but it does beg an interesting question to ponder. When a institution or a nation gets an artifact, what is their responsibility? What is the responsibility to the artifact? What was their responsibility in how they acquired the artifact? And really, what do these artifacts mean? And this is something that the Indiana Jones brings to the surface now that I reflect looking back. So taking the intro scene there, Indiana Jones goes into this tunnel, escapes all the booby traps, and gets this rare gold statue that presumably has religious significance to the local population. Right. And he is there to retrieve it just to take it back to the museum. It is, in many ways, a highly unethical thing to do. Yeah, and the the locals, the natives, are coming after him trying to stop him, too, so he is actively in a, a place that it's not a you know an archaeological dig site that's been abandoned for thousands of years. It's a place where there is actual like living cultural uh, significance. So he's going in to take something from a living population. Very interesting. Yeah, and you know, and there we also meet the other archaeologists that he's competing with, and we get the sense. Rene right, Bella. Yeah, right from the gate, he's French, so we know we don't like him because we're Americans. Mm, uh-huh. And he is manipulating the population right. because he wants Jones to do the work and for him to secure the artifact. Um, but it begs the question, the artifacts that we do have in the real world, what are the ethics around them? And I think my entry point in understanding Indiana Jones is to try to understand the huge question of how artifacts are found, where they end up, who owns them, and what is the ethical way to keep, maintain, and share these artifacts with the world. Right. Because in Indiana Jones, they take it as a given. They assume that the museum is the right place for these artifacts. Yeah. And I want to start by asking, is it? Is it the right place? And I don't know if we'll come to the clear answer. There's another interesting moment in the movie, in the beginning, when they're doing exposition, when, when um, Indiana Jones is back at the university and he's talking to the museum guy. He's like, oh, you almost got it. The museum guy goes, well, you know, you're doing everything in accordance with the International uh, Acquiring of Antiquities Act. Yeah, International Treaty for the Protection of Antiquities. Right, which, yeah. which is not an actual thing. Not a real thing. But doing some digging, there is a international antiquities agreement. It's called the UNESCO. UNESCO, yeah. UNESCO. And it's the United Nations Environment, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. 
uh, Convention on the Means of Prohibiting the Illicit Import, Export, and Transfer and Ownership of Cultural Property. This is an, an agreement that uh, got into place in the 1970s, and it's a document that gives a country of origin the right to recover stolen or illegally exported antiquities from the other member countries. So, for example, the United States is part of this, and uh, we actually incorporated it as United States law in 1983. And uh, this has, Britain is also uh, a member and has been a member since 2001. So the idea is, if Indiana Jones in 1936 goes to whatever jungle this is, I don't think they actually say, right? and when he takes that artifact without permission, there's actually a legal mechanism for those people to sue and get that artifact to be returned, which is interesting. Now, the reason this is in place is because for a long time, there was a, and still is, a black market antiquities where you can buy ancient artifacts on the black market for vast sums of money. This is a millennia-old problem. This is still uh, pervasive today, the illegal trade of, uh, of antiquities. Correct. Um, and that has also led museums to have their own ethical codes of conduct. So there is an international um, coalition of museums, I think it is, the ICOM, and they have eight tenets of their ethics that they now practice. So if you're a museum, you're part of this coalition, these are your ethical guidelines. Is one, museums preserve, interpret, and promote aspects of natural and cultural inheritance of humanity. Museums that maintain collections hold them in trust for the benefit of society and its development. Museums hold primary evidence for establishing and furthering knowledge. Museums provide opportunities for the appreciation, enjoyment, understanding, and management of the natural and cultural heritage. Museums hold resources that provide opportunities for other public services and benefits. Museums work in close collaboration with communities for which their collections originate, as well as the ones they serve. Museums operate in a legal manner. Museums operate in a professional manner. These are the eight tenets. Now, if you go onto their their website, you can actually click on each one, and it will give step-by-step guidelines and specific examples of what all of these means. But we see currently that we have developed both, A, a legal system that can retrieve stolen artifacts the way Indiana Jones takes that artifact in the beginning would probably fall under that. We don't know if he has done any paperwork. Right. Um, but you know, would probably fall under that. And then B, once it gets to a museum, there is a structure of, of agreed upon ethical code of conduct on what the museum is for. And it really just boils down to protecting the artifact, protecting knowledge and sharing that with the community at large as your primary motivation. Things that aren't on there for museums. Make profit is not on there. Right, yeah, because inherently museums are intended to be nonprofit and they're intended to be for the public welfare. They are stewarded by major gifts uh, rather than ticket sales or the like. And many, many important museums have free admission or pay what you can sliding scale admission and those are reinvested back in the, uh, you know, the company. this is this is a fascinating kind of way to start talking about Indiana Jones because, uh, you know, I, I read an interesting um, interview with an archaeologist about what he thinks of Indiana Jones. And every time I come across an article that interviews a, a real archaeologist about Indiana Jones, it always starts with like, oh, don't get me started on Indiana Jones. 
that guy's not a real archaeologist. He's terrible at it. Um, but at the end of the article, they always come back around to like, but I was a kid when that came out and it made me want to be an archaeologist. So it really did spur a generation to have interest uh, in what was seen as a stuffy academic field. But this one article that I read, there was just an interesting point about that iconic opening scene where Indy goes in to get this gold idol, which, yeah, shiny, great. You could totally put it in a museum. However, a like true archaeologist who's interested in studying the cultural history, who is you know interested in understanding more about the mysteries of the past and of human nature and our world, would go into that like thousands of year old you know jungle fortress and be so fascinated by the booby traps that were set up thousands of years ago and are still working and like wow what incredible feats of engineering and technology did these early people have care less about the you know object itself so there's a conversation i think to be had around artifacts too um where often our focus is on hey shiny or artifact that can slow that can be kind of this reduced image of what a culture means of what a culture's significance is when what's really important is the kind of interconnected uh web of uh, of history of anthropology that is tied in with the environment that is tied in with the people and how they interacted with this uh this object or how they protected it or why they protected it so very interesting and a perspective there of like Indiana Jones going in to retrieve artifacts often destroys the uh, the environment that the artifact is housed in. And what is the what is the significance? Why is the artifact seen as priceless and not the culture itself? Uh, interesting question to to start with. It is because when you think of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, action adventure movie that inspired people to want to pick up history books, it's all good. Yeah. But when you think about the actual implications of what happens in the movie and what that would mean in the real world, it's when you start to realize that Indiana Jones, just like his French counterpart, just like Adolf Hitler, fetishizes the object. Getting the object becomes the goal in and of itself. And do whatever you can to get it. Now, Indiana Jones wants these objects for a more moral purpose. Yeah, He's at least as the movie sees it. It sees putting it in a museum as the highest moral uh, application of these artifacts. Go on. And he wants to study the artifacts yeah. and learn from them. Absolutely. So the Ark of the Covenant to Indiana Jones is the culmination of a long academic history of trying to find and understand these events that happened through the artifacts However, he still fetishizes the acquisition of them. It is about getting it to get it. And then the Nazis, at the same time, on the same level, they don't want it in a museum. They want it because they want to see if they can weaponize the magic powers yeah. and magic properties within it. But they still are fetishizing the object yeah. in and of itself. And let's not forget that India is getting paid to go on these adventures. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But go on. Should, Sorry. I'm not sure what, what, what do you mean by that? Oh, I'm just saying if we're, we're looking at like Indiana Jones as this moral high ground character who's like, I am going and saving these artifacts from where they are to put them in a museum because it's the, it's the right thing to do. He's also pulling a salary to, to go on these. Yeah. Well, there's nothing altruistic about it. Yeah. Even though he is our hero, he, he it, it, doing it, even if he weren't getting paid, yeah, he's not contract. doing it altruistically. Right. His motivations are about, 
the museum. And so in that, the museum can help further knowledge. But for him, it's like, hey, look at me. I got this. So yeah. Yeah. There's very little altruistic motivation in any of the characters in this movie. Absolutely. So I want to jump into the inciting incident of uh, of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I want to kind of dig into the meat and potatoes of uh, how he sets off on this journey of finding the Ark of the Covenant. Let's do it. So uh, after we see that iconic opening scene, we of course get the stark contrast of the whip and pistol bearing Indiana Jones in the jungle and the stuffed shirt at the university and how uh, he looks a little bit more like our idea of the like stuffy academic um, who is still a chick magnet, of course. Well, it's Harrison Ford. It's Harrison Ford. If he was teaching your, you know your archaeology 101, what would you do? Um, but so we get this stark contract, contrast of who he is in the field and who he is in the classroom. And we kind of start to understand a little bit more about his role and how he is, how he does have a boss, how somebody sends him on these missions. Um, and then we meet a couple of representatives from the American government who are here to contract Indiana Jones to go out to Egypt and stop the Nazis from getting the Ark of the Covenant. There are some moving pieces here. They figure out that the Nazis are actually looking for the lost city of Tanis, which is where uh, that Ark of the Covenant is said to be buried in the Well of Souls. There is a, uh, a, a an object we are said to be looking for, the Staff of Ra and the headpiece of Ra. And we, you know, we get a little bit of context and exposition about uh, Indy's previous uh, partnerships and Indy's previous mentor. So he is the right guy for the job to go out here. But I want to talk a little bit about um, why Nazis. Uh, And I want to talk about the history of Nazi archaeology that actually forms the basis of this part of the movie, which I found super fascinating. So I was very much aware that, uh, you know, in between the wars and as Hitler was rising to power and then through World War II, the Nazis were very involved in stealing masterpieces of artwork. So I was very much aware of this because they were trying to build this, you know, massive collection of artwork. So there, so there is a, a black market of stolen goods and stolen um, pieces of, uh, of art, of Dutch masters, of all kinds of um, priceless paintings that were stolen by the Nazis during the war. But there was also a tradition of archaeology that is extremely fascinating when you look at uh, the motivations behind it. So in addition to stealing and hoarding massive amounts of visual art masterpieces, Nazi leaders were leading a movement to strengthen German nationalism by establishing a strong prehistory and by establishing a prehistory and a, a, a precedent for an Aryan race that is born out of you know, the European continent. So German nationalism... Uh, they're essentially trying to prove that Germany is the birthplace of civilization or the locomotive of civilization, Uh, that prehistoric Germanic peoples were actually super culturally and intellectually sophisticated, and they're trying to establish a basis for Aryan-centric superiority, Uh, whether or not the archaeology and the evidence actually supports that claim doesn't really matter because th- these are the Nazis and propaganda is one of their greatest tools that they use to, strength- to strengthen that nationalism amongst the people. So this also served as a justification for the conquest of lands like Poland and the Czech lands. So the theory was that 
if you could find supposedly Germanic artifacts or remains or ruins in those lands, it was proof that the land was stolen by the Poles or was stolen by the Czech people. So the Germans have to annex it back. We have to take it back because you took it from us thousands of years ago or millennia Fascinating. Ago. Yeah. So there was uh, one major organization, a think tank called, uh, I'm so sorry if I butcher this, I don't speak German, Annenerbe, um, which was established in 1935 by a man named Walter Dahr and was actually led later by Heinrich Himmler, who was one of the right-hand men of Hitler. Uh, Himmler has no archaeological experience whatsoever and is known for having a strange affinity for mysticism and the occult. So it's not unlikely, it's not crazy to imagine that like this guy might have been looking for the Holy Grail or looking for the Ark of the Covenant or looking for you know these kinds of mystical and mythological objects to strengthen you know the the image of the German people in prehistory, but also like maybe to get eternal life. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah. And that really does open up the conversation around the ethics of archaeology. Yeah, this idea that you can bend, if, if you have enough influence, you can bend archaeology and you can bend history to your will. Some of the um, like pseudo-archaeological stunts that were pulled off by Anan Erbe are, uh, there was a, 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 an archaeologist, quote-unquote, who was interested in going to Bolivia to study ruins of temples in the Andes Mountains because... He wanted to claim that because they're similar to certain things found in certain remains uh, found in Europe, that they were actually built by Nordic people who had traveled to Bolivia millions of years ago and built those. So he's trying to, uh, you know, force, uh, you know, a, a widespread diaspora of Germanic and Nordic pe and Aryan people all over the world and rob that cultural history from, you know, ancient Latin America and South America. Um, so yeah, I find it super fascinating that it was, uh, that a, a huge government engine was like, what can we do to strengthen our image to make people think that we are the greatest people? Let's essentially establish provenance. Let's look at ourselves like an artifact and say, actually this passed through the hands of these famous people, or this has a, a strong pedigree. This has, you know, a, a history and a prehistory of superiority all over the world. Fascinating. And clearly unethical. Absolutely. Right? Clearly unethical, deeply problematic. Yeah. And that brings me, if you don't mind me sanguine, because yeah, I think please. that'll segue into the thing that I want to talk about. So that's an obvious example of it being unethical. You know, a question that I have at the end of the Ark of the Covenant is, hey, Indiana Jones is the hero of the movie, and he's an awesome hero, but is he behaving in an ethical manner? Right. Uh, in how he and what he is doing to try to get the Ark of the Covenant and where the Ark of the Covenant eventually ends up. Now, and I'd like to, to bring the, eth the ethics of archaeology to the forefront because we have the example of the Nazis doing what they did with archaeology unethically. Mm -hmm. We discussed in the beginning the international laws that exist and the ethical codes of conduct of the museums. So problem solved, right? We defeated oh, the yeah, Nazis, right? We have international law, so if it's got stolen, there's a mechanism to get them back, and every museum behaves ethically, right? Yeah. No. No. So, and it's infinitely more complicated, and this is going to start with Brexit. So Britain decides that they want to leave the European Union. In order to leave the European Union... They need every member nation to sign off to allow them to leave. 
One of those member nations is Greece. And Greece and Great Britain have a 200-year-old argument over the ethics of artifacts and certain marble statues. So back in ancient Athens, there was a dude named Pericles who commissioned the building of the Parthenon of Athens. This was a place that was designed to worship and honor the gods and store the treasure that they were collecting from other Greek city-states that they had subjugated. Um, At the time, Athens was the dominant Greek power, and they had a lot of money, and they needed a place to put it, and they wanted it to be a place to honor the gods, hence they built the Parthenon. Can I ask a quick question? Absolutely. Um, When you say, so you say Greek city-states, and you say that Athens was like the great Greek city-state, was there at any point a unified government between those, or an agreement between those, or are they like separate Basically separate countries. Yeah. So ancient Greece is a is centered around the structural unit of the society is the polis, yes. which is the city. So every city is its own independent nation. Okay, great. And they were con- when they weren't uniting to fight a common enemy like the Persians, they were constantly fighting each other and jockeying for dominance. Okay. The two typically most dominant ancient Greek city-states at any time were either the Athenians or the Spartans. Right. And eventually they went to war, and uh, out of that, out of the ashes, Thebes becomes the most dominant for a while, which then Macedonia then conquers and unites Greece under a Macedonian empire. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm just wondering about Brief whether overview. there is a shared kind of cultural so, identity. There is a shared cultural identity. Yeah. Um, there is a, there are two different Greek dialects spoken, but they do share a language. There is an idea of a Greek culture, uh-huh. um, typically called culture, Hellenistic yeah. culture. Um, but independent nations, city states, and at this time, Athens having the most wealth and the most military prowess subjugated others to pay tribute, or they would literally kill every single man, woman, and child anyone left over would become a slave. All right. So, yeah, Athens wasn't necessarily kind to their fellow Greeks. They could either pay tribute or get destroyed. Um, All right, thank you for explaining that. Sure. And that is actually relevant. So, flash forward to the 1800s. Greece is now under the control over the Ottoman Empire and under the control of the Ottoman Empire for 350 years. So the Ottoman Empire has stably, has been the stable Greek government for some time. Okay. Britain and the Ottomans have a shared enemy in Napoleon in France, and he just got defeated. So Britain sends this guy named Elgrin to be the ambassador to the Ottomans in Greece. And he strikes a deal with the Ottoman government that he wants to take the statues that are remaining out of the Parthenon, about 10 tons worth of marble. He he buys he hires workers and he transports from um, the Parthenon in Greece to the British to London. This was so expensive, and he paid for it out of his own pocket that he was completely bankrupt. He had lost so much money. He ends up selling the statues to the British government at a huge loss, and they end up giving them to the British Museum in London, where they have stayed. Now, at the time, the Ottomans were using the Parthenon as a military base. And the statues that were there, and this is significant, were being used as target practice. So they were destroying these marble statues, and this guy Elgrin wanted to save yeah, as many. Yeah, you could make a case that he was rescuing them. And he, yeah, that, it, he was. It's not the case. He was. That's yeah. what he wanted to do. He wanted to save these statues from being destroyed. Great. 
Um, that was his main motivation. Some have made the argument that he stole them, but there's no historical evidence for it whatsoever. Right. Um, from all intents and purposes, it was a legal purchase from one man, from the government that controlled and had property over this, and then they went back to, to London. So here's where it gets even more complicated. Mm-hmm. London, Britain, works with the Greeks, the Greeks to overthrow the Ottomans in Greece. Britain decides the Ottoman Empire is no longer their friend and it's not proper that they don't actually have sovereignty. And then they help form the Greek nation that exists today. When this nation forms, one of the first things that it says is, hey, we want the statues back. And so now we get to Brexit. Greeks says, if you want us to sign off on your leaving Britain of the European Union, our price are our marble statues. Wow. The question is, whose statues are these? Whose statues are they? So a few things that have fleshed out in this debate. Stanford, the Stanford Law Department was asked to review international law and determine if there is a legal argument for Greece. Can Greece legally claim these statues as their own? And Stanford unanimously said no. There's no legal basis the uh, items were not stolen. They were purchased from an ambassador, independent, you know, man just wrote a check. They didn't have checks then, but whatever, bought yeah. them. And from a government legally, didn't steal them in the middle of the night. It took 10 years to move them. It was in public. They Everyone were not knew booby trapped. Yeah. So there's no legal basis for Greece to sue under current law to get these back. So what is then the moral thing? Now, right. it's worth noting of the statues that haven't been destroyed of the Parthenon, 50% of the remaining statues are in Athens in a museum. 50% of them are in the British Museum in London. It's worth noting the British Museum in London is the most largest and most famous ancient history museum in the fucking world. And it is in a major like world capital uh, that sees millions and millions of tourists, and the British Museum itself is free admission and admits millions of people every year. In fact, Laurel and I, in our trip to London, one of the reasons I wanted to go to London was because I wanted to go to the British Museum. And we spent hours there, and we saw these marbles. And see the they ancient artifacts. Yeah. So the largest collection of Egyptian antiquities outside of Cairo is the British Museum in London. Yeah. It's where the Rosetta Stone is. Among just... Countless, countless, just never-ending, beautiful and important archaeological objects are in this museum. So what's the moral argument? Who owns these statues? And this is a question that we can ask also filtered through the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Who owns these objects? And where do they belong? So one argument could be made saying that, hey, there are plenty of foreign objects and foreign paintings in museums all over the world. Right. Why does the country where they originally come from get ownership? How do, what's the, their basis to say that they're theirs? If there's a Picasso in Philadelphia and Spain wants it back, does Philadelphia have to give it back? Right. Well, and there's a, there's a very concrete example of this with uh, the manuscript that we own for James Joyce's Ulysses. The Rosenbach Museum uh, owns that because Rosenbach bought it. And Dublin constantly asks for it back, which, you know, they may have, you know, a moral claim to it. 
And we've actually struck up a deal where we exchange it every couple of years and they get that manuscript and they can display it. So a very concrete example of that. Well, and one could also argue, you know, if these objects don't belong to any nation, but they belong to the world, they belong to humanity, more people undoubtedly go to the British Museum in right. London than the museum in Athens. Yeah, More people are seeing these objects. When they first got put on display, it sparked a, a rebirth in ancient Greek culture, ancient Greek art, new fashion trends, because they were so popular that inspired a whole new generation of historians, poets, classicists, philosophers, all things that when you start exposing yourself to ancient Greece, you get opened up to. And because they're in London, it is opening up more people to the amazingness of ancient Greece and what and how unique ancient Greece was in history. You have a double-sided economic argument to be made as well because the British government has more money than the Greek government, as we know, and most archaeology is government-funded, and everything that's happening at the British Museum is going to be government or foundation funded, and they have a huge endowment and huge gifts. So they have more money to preserve and protect uh, and continue to research these than Greece is going to have. But the flip side of that is maybe if the, Gre if the Greeks had all of the Elgin marbles, they would have bigger gifts. They would have a greater endowment. There would be uh, you know, a government interest in preserving and protecting those that would help to flesh out a tourist industry as well. So there's two sides to the economic argument. Well, the other complicated thing is these weren't made by Greeks. They were made by Athenians. Athenians. So do the, does the Greek nation even have claim? But then we can't, we have, but we also have to be honest, these are also undeniably Greek at the same time that the city where they came from wants them back because they are important to that city right. and to the people that live there. And the, the people that live there want the art. They want to be able to claim the heritage. So we talked about the Nazis trying to create a line to history through archaeology yeah. for propaganda. Well, the Greeks want to create a line through history because that is, if you're an Athenian. Yeah, these are is, my ancient gods. Yeah, that is literally part of, of This is who, who my are. ancestors worshipped. Yeah, exactly. So they do have a strong cultural connection and a strong claim of cultural connectedness, more so than I do when I see them. Right. You know, the Athenians have a better claim. And so it comes down to what is the right thing to do? Now, I don't think Brexit should be the catalyst for de defining and ending and settling this argument. You know, I think that is a shame. You know, one quote I have from an article I read about it, any decision of the future of Parthenon sculptures should be reasoned and a responsible one. It's unarguable that more people have seen and fallen in love with Greek sculpture in ancient Greece in the free-to-enter British Museum than the museum in Athens. Right. The sculpture's future must be assessed for the good of the world. The Elgin marbles do not belong to the Conservative Party, and they must not be reduced to a cheap, ch cheap chip in the chaotic poker game of Brexit. This was the conclusion of an article where... The conservative party who wants to get Brexit through are like, you just want us to move these statues and we get our Brexit? Cool. Right. Which has created a backlash in Britain saying, wow. no. They're ours. We no. Them. These, like, and, and academics. So when I went to school for ancient history, one of my ancient history professors um, was an archaeologist by trade. He had a doctorate in archaeology. 
And his argument in this debate was that there is more good to the world with these artifacts in London, even though it's not moral that they're there. Right. And, and, but it does objectively benefit humanity more because it's London, because it is the Mecca of, of it's, it's London. It's fucking London. You know, what else do I need to say about it? Right. Right. Anyone who wants to study ancient history has to go to London at some point and see the artifacts. Even if you're not a historian, even if you're just a casual history lover like myself. So it undeniably helps further human knowledge more, but it is also not okay. Yeah. It's a little morally gray there. That, yeah, no, that's fascinating. To kind of impose this onto Indiana Jones, I just had an interesting thought that I that just occurred to me while we were talking about that. And I, so I, obviously the repeated line that Indiana Jones has, I don't actually think he says it in this movie, but he says it multiple times in the, uh, in the movies to follow, is just, it belongs in a museum. Uh, unilaterally, the uh, position of the Indiana Jones films as archaeological ethicists is it belongs in a museum and that is the best place for artifacts to be. Um, obviously a movie has to take a stand like that to have a consistent and, you know, well-drawn character. It can't really flip flop in an action adventure movie, uh, in a, in a super complex way, but it opens up us to have this argument. However, what I think is fascinating is that at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, we see that this uh, conflict between the German and American government, this conflict between uh, the people contracting Indiana Jones and how they feel about the Nazis, means that this artifact actually ends up boxed up in a warehouse away from anyone. This incredibly important archaeological find, probably the most important archaeological find to date in the world of Indiana Jones, the Ark of the freaking Covenant, is in a crate in a warehouse where no one will find it. We have, quote unquote, top men working on it. So it does kind of uh, complicate that idea of, uh, of it belongs in a museum because we have this artifact that we know has great power, that we know has this sort of supernatural element to it that ends up away from everyone. By taking it out of the hands of the people who you think will mistreat it, it ends up you know, everyone is deprived of learning from that object, which I think is interesting. It is a very interesting thing. And it's undeniable that current museum culture that we have was built on the backs of colonial empires. Yeah. And a colonial empire is by its very definition selfish. Uh, and it's by its very definition, morally complex and often on the more wrong side of history than yeah. right. Yeah. Um, it, you know, not to say that I don't think as a, as, as the historian on here, there's no period of history that should ever be demonized. Even if there were people that were acting in a way that seems very demonic, but because of the colonial history around these, the building of museum culture, there will always be this ethical argument of, is it right? Because it's so privileged to be a, a history guy in the West surrounded by great museums that I got to learn ancient history by going to these museums and studying these artifacts. And because I come from the cultures that conquered the world, 
And because of that, they got all the artifacts. Yeah. It or, makes they me, got, yeah. The, or they got all the money to buy all the artifacts. Yeah. And like they you can said, go on private expeditions and jump into Egyptian tombs and raid King Tut. And the idea of, of that you said that the economics of it, because once you have these massive museums like the British Museum in London or the Metropolitan Museum in New York, right. they end up generating more interest, more traffic, they grow, so then you have more money and more wealth so that you can hire more people to take care of it. So then it comes to the point where it's like, well, of course we can't move these to a place that's not as well funded. They might get destroyed. The safest spot is here. And like, it's fucked up. Yeah. But the safest spot for the Elgin Marbles is the British Museum in London. That is just undeniably true. Yeah. But it's because right now, yeah. It's because Britain was an empire exactly. that made that happen. It makes me think of the the crown jewels too, which you can see in London at the at the Tower of London, uh, which are fascinating and beautiful and have this incredible royal history in England, and yet most of those jewels were like taken from India and the Near East when they were um, uh, British colonies. Uh, so it's like, what, what is the responsibility of uh, the British empire when you're taking something from a land that is now no longer yours, even if it was technically legal at the time, which, you know, intersects with the Elgin marbles. I want to also talk about, because we're talking a lot about Europe, which, you know, the British empire especially had a lot, um, a lot to do with kind of the foundation of this argument of ownership and this argument of uh, cultural ownership. Uh, but I want to talk about America. I want to talk about how Indiana Jones is American and how, why that is significant in this debate, why we insert him into this, uh, into this space, into the space of being uh, an archaeologist who has to kind of wade through the murky ethics. And I think there's a lot um, there's a lot of reasons why Indiana Jones is American. Obviously, the filmmakers were American. They're making a movie for American audiences. Um, and they wanted to create a sort of Wild West cowboy archaeologist, right? They wanted him to have the energy of a cowboy, uh, of a bad boy, of, you know, picking himself up by his bootstraps uh, and and you know, running through the jungle. Uh, but it's also fascinating to look at his Americanness in the context of who he is juxtaposed against. And that gets really complex, I think. Um, his shadow figure, as, as the character even says, is Rene Belloc, the French archaeologist, who is always in it for the wrong reasons, of course, um, impurely motivated. But they do the same things. They are very, very similar, especially in their methods, because they're not necessarily the most archaeologically sound methods for retrieving artifacts. But Belloc associates himself with the Nazis, and the American, Indiana Jones, will fight Nazis and punch Nazis at any cost. So there is a new world, old world uh, kind of uh, dynamic here, but it makes me wonder about having the American character be the mouthpiece against the Nazis and have them be the mouthpiece for, uh, I can take best care of these artifacts, um, and how that fits historically, how that fits ethically. It makes me um, kind of question, like obviously when you're fighting Nazis, the Americans are gonna be on the better side of that coin. The Nazis are the worst. 
Um, so yeah, it's going to be Nazis. better in our hands than in Nazis' hands. Yes, but if we remove Nazis from the equation, is you know that um, is that claim inherently culturally superior? Is there an inherent supremacy to that argument of I know what's best for these artifacts? And you know when we look at it in the context of World War II having an American character be the one who comes up against the Nazis when the Europeans won't feels a little like historically dissonant with what actually happened because it was the Europeans who were fighting the Nazis before we were. I don't know if that's too crazy and convoluted. Well, the but. one thing that is, is clear to me in that discussion, do you know who is never in the debate of whether the Ark of the Covenant would be in good hands? Hmm. The Egyptians. Yeah, so it's it's either the Nazis or the Americans. It's never the Egyptians. And the Egyptian characters, save for a few good, fun side characters, are purely just props there. They're being hired by the Nazis to stand in the way of the protagonist, or they're there offering fruit to the uh, the Nazis while they're trying to hide the the, yeah. the heroes. But it's never at any point is there a, even a discussion or a hint that maybe it's okay for Cairo to handle Cairo artifacts. Right. In fact, they're only there for grunt labor, whether they are, whether they're villains and they're hurting the, them or whether they're for hire to help. That's all that they are. So absent from that, it becomes the debate is just between which Western civilization, the fascist or the free, would be better for the artifact. And the question that I think we should be introducing is what about the people? What about the public? Yeah. What, what about, about the, the Egyptians? Yeah. Those who have a, a cultural significance and a tie to it. And, you know, then we see Indiana Jones jumping into unexcavated tombs and, you know, poorly handling human remains and destroying major statues and, and completely walls. destroying yeah. these archaeological, uh, archaeologically significant locations that would be like UNESCO World Heritage Sites that are Absolutely. as significant as the pyramids. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's super fascinating that they are just left out of that conversation and equation. Yeah. Any unearthed Egyptian tomb that gets earthed is fucking precious. Yeah, and it's every, priceless. Every single... Forget the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, every single grain of dust in it should be studied. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm Egyptologists probably would see that and cringe. Yeah, and, and how, like... Okay, you bring the Ark of the Covenant back to a museum, say, in an alternate universe. Great. You've got an Ark of the Covenant that you can look at. Maybe there's some markings you can decipher. You could spend the rest of your life down in those unexcavated uh, you know, cities and tombs studying you know, the engineering, studying everything that's going on down there. That could be your entire career. It's and, so significant. And the Egyptians wrote on everything. You could study the yeah, literature. absolutely. And see what they wrote and why they wrote it and deciphering that. It's so significant. And there are you know, little R2-D2 and C-3PO hieroglyphs too, so you have evidence of ancient aliens. Okay. <laughs> And with I, that, I think uh, I think this has been a fantastic episode. A um, lot more to say. This was by no means comprehensive. I don't know where I stand on the ethical question. I really don't. I've directly benefited, um, and I have had my eyes opened and my intellectual curiosity peaked by virtue of the amazing artifacts. I, we record this in Philadelphia. 
And the largest sphinx outside of Cairo is in the Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology at University of Penn. It's a 10-ton sphinx. It's fucking gorgeous. And every time I go to that museum, I stop by and take a picture of myself next to it. I wrote a paper about it. It was excavated legally with the uh, approval of the Egyptian government at the time. But that Egyptian government is no longer in power. It was under the, I believe, the Mubarak regime. So who knows, man? What are you going to do? That's, yeah, it's hard. That's why it is still a conversation today. That's why, you know, people with more experience in the field and more expertise than us clearly are still having this debate uh, and the, you know, the shadow of imperialism, the shadow of colonialism looms large over all of us. All of our histories are intertwined and every single one of our nations, our states, our cultural identities is shaped by the people around us and by who we occupied or who occupied us at a given time. So it is, it is kind of amazing to uh, dig into these arguments, uh, puns intended, and try to understand more about our relationships to each other through our artifacts and our relationships to our history and our our objects. So that's that's one of the reasons why Indiana Jones, I think, makes such good fodder for these conversations, why it's still so relevant uh, in a substantial way and not just as a fun adventure. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm glad that we have the opportunity to talk about this. And until next time guys, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.